if you would open in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and this morning we're going to take a close look at verses 13 through 17, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, the title of my sermon this morning is Goodness, Suffering, and hope. Goodness, suffering, and hope. First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than if it should be God's will if it should be God's will, then for doing evil. On the evening of January 25th, middle of winter, uh, the year 1736, so like 40 years before the Declaration of Independence, on the evening of January 25th, 1736, John Wesley was on board a ship in the North Atlantic bound for Georgia. A group of mission-minded German-speaking believers were also on that ship. Though Wesley was an ordained Anglican clergyman, he was not yet, according to his own testimony, born again. Intrigued by these Christians, he began teaching himself German to be able to converse more freely with them. Well, on this evening, the third in a series of violent storms descended upon them with such fury that the sea broke completely over the deck, covering the ship from stem to stern and splitting the main sail. Their lives were in jeopardy. People screamed, people cried out and trembled. And Wesley himself confessed his fear in his diary. But he noticed that through the panic, those German believers maintained their calm and continued singing hymns and praying together. Though I'm sure those Moravian brethren were also afraid to some degree, There was something about the beauty of their fellowship and the unshakableness of their faith 
that set them apart from everyone else in that storm in a way that captured John Wesley's attention and led to his salvation. Wesley returned to England, spent time with the Moravian brethren there, and as a result of their influence, he experienced the new birth in 1738 because he witnessed the calm of believers in a storm. Now Peter's original readers were not caught in the midst of a fearful storm at sea. They were in the midst of a fearful storm of slander, abuse, and reviling, and it was getting worse. And the Holy Spirit here, through Peter, called them to not be afraid or troubled when they were suffering for doing good, but instead to walk in such a deep hope in the midst of their fearful circumstances that outsiders would take notice of their lives, would take notice of their trusting, calm demeanor, and would be intrigued enough to inquire about the reason for their hope, rather like Wesley did when observing the trusting calm of the Moravians. Now, I'd like to break down that summary statement. I've just summarized what Peter was attempting to communicate to his readers. I'd like to break that summary statement down under three headings. Christian goodness, Christian suffering, and Christian hope. And we'll take them one at a time. The opening verse of our text says, Now... Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? We find the theme of Christian goodness or Christian holiness or righteousness throughout this epistle. In the opening verses, we learn that we've been elected unto salvation in the foreknowledge of God and in the sanctification of the Spirit, we've been chosen by God in his foreknowledge and set apart by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. There's righteousness. In chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that as obedient children... We're not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but are to be holy in our conduct, since he is holy, chapter 1, verse 14. He goes on to say that we're to conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exiles here, since we were ransomed from the futile ways of our forefathers at a great cost, by the precious blood of Christ. So if we've been purchased at such a cost, the blood of Christ, in order that we might glorify God, we should be afraid to live lives that aren't glorifying him. 
In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, through Peter, calls us to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, keeping our conduct among the Gentiles so honorable that even when unbelievers call us evildoers, they might see our good deeds and in the end glorify Christ. Christian goodness is to be seen by the world and how we relate to human institutions, the emperor, governors, being subject to them for the Lord's sake. Christian goodness is to be seen by the world in our marriages, in our moral and ethical conduct, and in our unity with one another. Christian goodness is also to be seen by the world, Peter says, in our sympathy, in our love for each other, in our humility, and in hearts that are so tender and gracious that we even forgive our enemies as Jesus forgave us, as Joseph unpacked for us two weeks ago. Then, immediately preceding our text, Peter cites the 34th Psalm, giving his readers a powerful motivation for living righteous, good lives. For the eyes of the Lord, he says, verse 12, 1 Peter 3, 12, also Psalm 34, 15, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Do you want the eyes of the Lord upon you? And his ears are open to their prayer. Do you want the ears of the Lord open to your prayer? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, there's powerful motivation to righteous living. Peter's point there is that if we walk in Christian goodness and if we're zealous for good in all the ways that he's been talking about that we just reviewed, then we will have the Lord's watchful and protective eye upon us then the Lord's ear will be open to our prayers. Which brings us to the first verse in our text this morning where Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Who's there to harm you? Now, there's a sense in which Peter is saying that when we walk in the kind of Christian goodness that he's been describing it will tend to reduce the likelihood of our meeting with hatred and slander and persecution and harm. It's why again and again he says, now if you suffer for righteousness, but make sure it's for righteousness that you're suffering. We're, we're less likely to encounter that kind of suffering if we're walking in the kind of Christian goodness that the scriptures call us to. Generally, people and governments oppose and prosecute evildoers. They don't normally come after good people. They come after bad people, normally. That's just a, that's a sociological truism. It's just a fact. And while I think that is part of what Peter means when he asks, if you're zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? I don't think the sociological reality is his main point. I think his main point is the eschatological reality or the ultimate reality as the age comes to a close. If you're zealous for good, 
then the Lord's watchful, protective eye is upon you. His ear is ever attentive to your prayer. So nobody can ultimately harm you. I think that's his main point. Peter's main point is the same point that Jesus was getting at when he said to Peter himself and the other disciples, and these are sober words. It's the parallel passage from what was read in our scripture reading this morning, Luke 21. You will be hated. Some of you they will put to death. But I tell you, not a hair of your head will perish. Somehow, may we believe this, somehow, even in death, the believer is not harmed. Which not only gives us comfort, it gives us courage. This is the same eschatological reality that Paul was driving at in Romans 8 when he asked rhetorically, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that rhetorical question is nobody. Nobody. Nobody can ultimately succeed against us. Not even death can harm us. Now, I suppose some of Peter's readers thought like some of you are thinking, like I was thinking, if we're good, who can harm us? What kind of question is that? I'll tell you who can harm us. How about those who are reviling us and those who are slandering us? Or those who are stirring up public opposition against us? Or those who are seizing our property? Or those who hate us and constantly come at us, even threatening our lives. Who can harm us? Peter, the same kind of people who killed John's brother, your friend, the Apostle James. The same kind of people who tried to kill Paul, but he narrowly escaped being let down out of a window in the city wall. The same kind of people who caused riots when the gospel was preached. The same kind of people, both Jews and Gentiles, who killed Jesus. That's who can harm us. Which brings us to our second heading this morning. Christian suffering. Suffering for Christian goodness. Now Peter was, Peter was not deluded or detached from reality when he says, who can harm you with a view that nobody can? If the watchful eye of the Lord is upon you and he's attentive to your prayer. He's not detached from reality. The apostles were keenly aware of the realities of tribulation, of distress, of persecution, of danger, and even of sword. In a few short years, both Peter and Paul will be martyred for being Christians. And widespread persecution would follow. 
And let me just say something here parenthetically. That, that we have scarcely been persecuted in this country. I mean, we really don't really even know what it's about. And we pray that continues. But Christians have been reviled and slandered in the here and now. And my concern is that our response to what little abuse we've experienced can betray an ignorance of what the Holy Spirit calls us to here. It's like what the Lord said to the prophet, if, if, you, if you can't run for, with the footmen, what are you going to do when the horses come? Peter is not naive. He is keenly aware of the reality that there are many who hate the Christian definition of what it means to be good. He knows that many people feel threatened and indicted or accused simply by the lives and the testimony of righteous living Christians. He knows that those kind of people will sometimes heap abuse upon Christians. He talks about it We'll hear more about that in a couple of sermons. Those who heap abuse because you don't participate with them in their partying. He knows that, that abuse can be heaped upon Christians within the bounds set by the will and the providence of Almighty God. So Peter acknowledges that reality in the next verse by saying, if... We suffer for righteousness' sake. We will be blessed. Living righteous lives will tend to minimize this kind of opposition. But if we suffer for righteousness' sake, please hear this. We will be blessed. If that happens to you, in your workplace, in your family, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. Now, we really have to believe this. We have to believe it because Jesus himself said it. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile. That's what's going on here. When they revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Hallelujah. If, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Because your reward is great in heaven. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, 
the eternal honor that is bestowed on you will far outweigh the brief disgrace that you suffer. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, the unending delights of that reward, whatever form it takes, the unending delights of the reward that you're now entitled to will far outweigh the short-lived distress of their abuse. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, your future gains will far outweigh your present losses at their hands. In fact, Jesus says that the future blessing for suffering persecution in the present is so great that it's caused its cause for present rejoicing. Your future blessing is so great, it's cause for present rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad, he said, for great is your reward in heaven. Now next, the Holy Spirit, through Peter in this text, calls us to... Calls us to not fear those who abuse us. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now here Peter is quoting Isaiah 8 where the Lord called Isaiah and the righteous remnant of that day to not be afraid like everybody else in Judah was afraid of the threats that were made against them by the northern kingdom in their alliance with Assyria. They were threatening to wipe them off the map. And the Lord said to Isaiah... And the little band of the remnant of faithful ones do not fear what they fear or be in dread. So Peter is actually quoting that so that Peter says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. In our translation, the text in Isaiah says, do not fear what they fear or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says, or the Lord says to Isaiah, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. And the way Peter puts it is, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. If there was ever any doubt whether or not the Lord of hosts is Jesus Christ, there you have it. He is God. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. And Isaiah goes on to say, let him be your fear and him be your dread. Don't be afraid of those who are threatening you. Let him be your fear. Now let's think about that for a minute. I think John Piper makes it very clear here. He says, in connection with fearing God in this text, he says, he is not saying to be constantly gripped with the emotion of fear towards God, but rather always regard the displeasure of God as more fearful than the displeasure of man. 
What God wants here from Isaiah is for the prospect of offending God to be a much more dreadful thing to him than the prospect of being persecuted by men. So that when abuse is coming to believers, we don't want to be afraid of our abusers. We want to be afraid of displeasing God. Because it's in those very moments that we have a glorious opportunity to testify to the reality of our hope. Don't be afraid of them. Fear the Lord. What the Holy Spirit calls us to here is not to be afraid of those who malign us, but instead to sanctify Christ the Lord in our hearts and resolve to honor him and obey him and do his will, come what may. That's the test that persecution brings to the church. Will we remain faithful to honor Christ? We'll talk about this more when we get to the end of chapter 4. So we've looked at Christian goodness. We've looked at Christian suffering for goodness. And now we look at Christian hope. Christian hope. Peter says, don't be afraid of them. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Resolve that you're going to obey and honor him and worship him alone. And always be prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, hope has also been a recurrent theme in this epistle. The opening verses of 1 Peter, I still remember Jared's sermon on it, speaks of our having been born again to a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. Some churches I know are called living hope. I think the church that Jared grew up in is called living hope. We've been born again to what? To a living hope. 1 Peter 1, 3. He goes on to describe it as the hope of a salvation which is imperishable and unfading and kept in heaven for us. Our hopes, Peter says, he goes on to explain in one of my favorite verses in the Bible, our hopes, he explains, are fundamentally eschatological. That is, they have to do with the consummation of all things. Set your hope, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully, fully on the grace that will be brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we are to locate our hopes fully on that day. Fully. And that hope will not disappoint. That hope will sustain us to the very end. And keep our hearts buoyed up at the prospect of what God has promised us. This is critical. <laughs> we ultimately don't locate our hopes in this life. We used to sing it. 
those of you who were around in the 90s. My hope is not where? In this life or what? This passing world's, that's right. But my hope is in a life that will never fade. My hope is in you, Jesus, risen King, ascended Lord. Even death could not hold you in the grave. We sang it. What a great song. Joseph, let's sing it again. We don't locate our hopes in a politician. We don't locate our hopes in a spouse. We don't locate our hopes in covenant fellowship. We don't locate our hopes in sovereign grace churches or a pastor or in a pastoral team or in our parents or in our children or in our grandchildren. We don't ultimately locate our hope in doctors or in medicine or in anything in this life. Set your hope, says Peter, on one thing, completely, totally, on grace. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's where our hopes are centered. Now the threat of death was very pronounced on that ship crossing the Atlantic in 1736. People screamed, they cried out, they trembled. But the German believers maintained their calm, anchored in a hope, in a hope that was beyond this life, in a hope that they felt in the midst of a storm. And Wesley inquired about that hope and was saved. So in terms of being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us, again, John Piper says, don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody else's questions. This text is not really calling for us to be an expert in apologetics like Tim Keller. You know, study Tim Keller's reason for God and memorize the answers. No, that's not what the text is really calling for. I mean, there's a case to be made for, for apologetics. But this text is not saying that. Piper says, don't meditate beforehand on how to answer somebody else's question. Our primary activity in preparing to witness is to keep our hearts happy in God. It has become clear to me than ever before that the reason we aren't more free and natural in testifying to our neighbors and associates about the reality of our hope in Christ is that we don't feel very hopeful. And he goes on to explain, this is why we read our Bibles in the morning. This is why we pray. This is why we come to church. So that our hopes are renewed and invigorated every day. So that when, out of the blue, the opportunity to speak of your hope in Christ arises, your heart is happy in God and you're able to communicate naturally. Brilliant. We should feel hopeful, brothers and sisters. We should feel very, very hopeful. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has looked upon our helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for our souls. And our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. We have been fully reconciled to God Almighty by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
and a sense of the love of God for us has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So in the midst of opposition and reviling and slander, we can be filled with hope. Why? Because now and forever, we are eternally safe and secure under the watchful eye of God, under his hearing ear, and beneath his everlasting arms. Now Peter goes on. He says, now listen, when you defend your hope in Christ, make sure you do it with gentleness and respect. Again, Peter is always concerned about Christian goodness. You know, you're being persecuted for, for doing good. Don't ruin that by, by coming back at them in the way that they came at you. Maintain that Christian beauty, the, the, the Christian ethic, the Christian love. Maintain that. When we're slandered or mocked or threatened, we can be tempted to mount a sharp, hostile counterattack. But Peter here disallows any kind of abrasive or caustic or coarse response in kind. Make sure when you're testifying of your hope that you're doing it with gentleness. That, that word is meekness. We've read, many of us, that wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly. It speaks of Jesus' meekness, his gentleness, his grace. And here Peter calls us to communicate our hope with meekness, with gentleness. And then he also says we're to testify having a good conscience. Having a good conscience. It's, you know, it's, you know this. It's almost impossible for us to effectively shine the spotlight on our glorious hope in Christ when conscience is shining the spotlight on our sin and our lives. And there are unresolved areas of disobedience and rebellion against God in our own hearts that have gone undealt with. You know, in that condition, it's almost impossible to testify well of the hope within you. So Peter is concerned that, hey, maintain a clear conscience. Keep a good conscience. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Repent as often as is necessary to gain, to have a, a sense of his forgiveness and go into that with a clear conscience. And then, of course, well, let me, let me elaborate on that point. Undealt with sin makes us unready for witness. I love what Paul says to Timothy in this regard. I've got this verse on my filing cabinet. It's a metal filing cabinet. I've got a magnet. I've got this verse right there. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If you have a clear conscience, you're ready. You're ready to be used by the Lord. 
So readiness to testify involves having already responded to the Spirit's conviction, repenting, confessing, receiving forgiveness for a clear conscience. I've already made that point. It also means responding to those who oppose and mock us and abuse us in a way that conscience approves and commends. So we, wanna, we don't want to ruin our witness and our testimony of our good lives by a sharp response. All right, let me conclude. <clears throat> our text today has, has really not been about suffering in general. When I first approached this text, I thought to myself, oh, you know, I need to think through a theology, you know, what is our theology of suffering? But then as I looked at it closely, it really is a very narrow case of suffering. The text itself is about a specific kind of suffering, and that is suffering for doing good. And the final verse in our text, verse 17, makes it clear that sometimes it will be God's will for us to suffer for righteousness' sake, if it should be God's will. Sometimes it's God's will that we suffer for righteousness' sake. I know that's the case because Paul said to Timothy in chapter Second Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't think there's any of us in this room who've been Christians for any length of time who have not felt it. And in the providence of God, the seasons where we go through that kind of opposition or slander or reviling, those are set by the providence of God for his glory. Sometimes it is the will of God for us to suffer this ways, this way. And when that happens to you, and I want to say not if, but when, remember that the Lord's eye is upon you. Remember that the Lord's ear is attentive to your prayers. Remember that a blessed Reward is coming to you. When you're feeling the sting of the abuse, remember his eye is upon you, his ear is attentive to your prayer. You've just qualified for reward. And may the Holy Spirit so fill your heart with hope in the promises of God that even when you're slandered, maligned, or threatened, you will be able to peaceably testify. It is well. It is well with my soul. It's well with my soul. You'll feel that it's well with your soul because that hope is alive in your heart. May God bless the preaching of his word.